1: as the scientist couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find
0: Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I am the other one, Neil Buck. And this week, we're celebrating spooky season with a monster mash by chatting about our favorite video game monsters. We've considered their scare factor, aesthetic, and overall gameplay design and have dwindled our list down to just five in no particular order that left their macabre mark on us. So, Neil, as is customary fashion, uh, I'm going to let you kick things off with your first memorable monster.
1: So I think I'll go chronologically with these ones. That's the way I'll, I'll go. Um, and so that means I'll start with the Shambler from Quake which is that yeti looking creature with the horrible red things and the (laughs) more and the electric fucking powers and now I think in terms of games and horror I think it's one of the first creatures in a game that really just intimidated me the second I saw it it just the way it bursts out at you the first time it appears and just with the electric power and the look of it and just Uh, not really being au fait with all this this cosmic horror stuff that was going on in it at the time and what any of it meant it was just like what the fuck is that what the fuck is that you know and again it already had some of that to a degree but most of the enemies at that point had been quite humanoid and then you get this thing and it just absolutely wrecks the place and wrecks you and yeah at a time where I was still sort of learning the ropes of how to play games on a PC with mouse and keyboard, it was just frightening, yeah. like that. It's like when you've been in one kind of control scheme for so long, you know, or it's just like a whole new thing, and it was, that added an extra layer to it. And, you know, I clearly still have some sort of... um, Feedback trauma to those times because even playing like the remastered version, it was like seeing it again, going, Ah, you, you fucker, sort of thing like that, and uh, getting all panicked in terms of fighting them. Yeah, it did wear off, thankfully, but at the same time, it was nice to know that it's still going to have that effect after all these years. This polygonal creature from yesteryear still did something to me, yeah, which is always impressive. And you know, I think that's probably been the basis for a lot of the things over the years that I've really sort of connected with in terms of game monsters.
0: Well, that's the thing. Like, I only just played Quake last year when we covered the remaster. And I think that the shambler speaks to sort of the timelessness of quality monster design, right? Because even though I'm coming to this game far after when it was released, it still made a notable impact amongst the other horrors that you fight in Quake, right? And I think that part of the you know, the Cthulhu or Lovecraftian unknowingness with which that sort of universe operates with in the original Quake, it's a surprise when you actually end up fighting the Shambler because you assume, oh, you know, it's a brute enemy. It's a bullet sponge. I'm going to go about this a typical way that I do with these kind of brawler enemies. And yet this guy all of a sudden just starts shooting bolts of electricity at you or lightning. And, you know, that kind of ratchets up the deadliness of that monster and sort of the overall intensity of combat because all of a sudden, If you misjudge what you think the capabilities of that creature is, all of a sudden he's, you know, he's beating your ass from afar, (laughs) even more so almost than when he was up close and personal with you. Um, And I think that that kind of speaks overall to Id's approach to monster design because, you know, they sort of present things as one thing, but then they always have this sort of ace up their sleeve, a killer ace, if you will, um, that is like a curveball to not only their overall design, but I think, you know, more importantly, from the gameplay perspective – Um, And that's always been something with those, you know, early and uh, mid to late 90s shooters that, you know, I think has been lost a little bit. I think a lot of the times when you think about more modern creature or monster design and, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a um, broad brush with which I'm painting (laughs) sort of monster design in general. But um, I think a lot of the times now what you see is what you get with monsters And every time something is able to have another form or it's able to have that sort of uh, special attack or ability up its sleeve that's not readily apparent from the outset of meeting them, um, that always kind of is what I'm looking for in monster design. And it more importantly kind of facilitates like, oh yeah, like just because one monster seems to be melee focused or even range focused, they can be a deadly threat in both facets of combat.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that really took me back at the time was just like, It's this big thing coming towards you anyway with these bloody claws, the suggestion that they've done their damage before. But it's that minute it suddenly just summons its hands up to fucking throw a lightning ball at you. And suddenly like, what What the fuck is this? (laughs) That's enough of a curveball, thank you. And yeah, that's a genuine surprise sort of thing, which they're always the best things in in monster design in any type of game. Is like when you think it's going to do one thing, and then it just does a whole other thing. Yeah, um, there's a, a very particular notorious Sekiro boss that um, once beaten, twice not so beaten, sort of thing. And uh, it's like a source of frustration for many people, but it's also just like this abject horror of like I've just fucking beaten this thing, and then it comes back <laughs> in a really grotesque way, and it's just yeah, love it. it, it, it I love it in the, the aftermath, not so much in the moment. But <laughs> it's uh, yeah, um, the Shamblers very much the earliest example i think i had of like this enemy does something else you know like that and like really just threw me for a loop so with that that's my first one what about your first one
0: well i'm going to keep things in the uh the id family in that era and i'm going to go with spider mastermind and there's a slight caveat spider mastermind slash arachnotron yeah um and sort of the the sort of caveat there will be apparent shortly, but so Spider Mastermind was my first recollection of a boss in a horror game. So, you know, going back to the first time I played Doom 2, getting to the end of that, uh, that boss really did combine my greatest fears of bullet sponge enemies at the time and uh, biologically engineered super spiders. Um, So that was always a boss fight that really stood out to me as being this ultimate test of you know, I suppose, wits, mastering their attack pattern on top of the fact that, you know, um, I think back in the day, bosses, I had this very sort of Super Nintendo sort of uh, approach to what I expected from bosses. (laughs) And to have something like that, that not only, you know, strafed, but would actually like pursue you and had like homing uh, attacks and things like that was an aspect that already took a game that was very fast paced, was very sort of life or death by a minute's notice based on the difficulty you're playing on and then just cranked that volume up to, you know, 15. (laughs) Just a bit. Um, Yeah, just a bit. And, you know, what I think, apart from the fact that I love the design of it, right, and it further speaks to just Doom as a series, their really commitment to continually taking these uh, different flavors, I suppose, of like demons and then you have these... People that have been, you know, the body horror of Marines that have been changed from some demonic force and whatnot, and the fucked up creations that come from that to then things that have some basis in reality, but then seeing the technological and uh, the demonic interpretations of them later on with something like Spider Mastermind, um, I think really made me a lifelong Doom fan because of how memorable the different monsters and creations were. And, you know, I had that caveat of the Arachnatron because. Spider Mastermind would then blend into, I believe it was the final boss of Doom 2016, which, you know, was very much a trip down memory lane for me and whatnot. But then I was so thrilled to see in Doom Eternal, you know, it wasn't just, again, we get Spider Mastermind. If anything, you get a more compartmentalized version of that creature with the Arachnetrons that pop up more frequently. And they're not I suppose like the fear that I had when I learned that they were going to be in Doom Eternal was the idea that, okay, you're going to take this iconic boss that really was this thing that was like a monolith of challenge, and all of a sudden it's being reduced to a fodder enemy. And I think that Doom Eternal treated that sort of morphology or recompartmentalizing of that boss in a way that didn't allow it to just feel like fodder. But it actually felt like one of those mid-tier units yeah. that could really you know, still fuck you up. But at the same time, it was this much more agile, much more mobile threat. So if anything, it took sort of the Spider Mastermind and it made it this more agile foe that uh, had multiple avenues of combat. Um, and it made it more of a common threat while not, I think, trivializing the importance of having a monster like that. No, definitely
1: not. I think it's... Doom is just superb for the enemy design in that. You know, I again, it goes back to that idea of simplicity. Um, many of the games of that era, I remember the enemy design very well because it is a lot easier to just dedicate detail in a very simple way. You know, when you don't have you know, the technical power to uh, make things look so you know big and scary and monstrous and detailed like you can today. But, you know, that, that's good in one sense, but you know. i I like what that leads to the imagination a little bit. And I think in Doom especially, I think the 2D, 3D nature of it means that it feels very unnatural in a new way, You know, especially with that character as well. It is just, the, the movement of it is just like, and the sound of it is just, yeah. It, I mean, the sound is always a great thing about Doom. We know that. But mm-hmm. yeah, it is just a superb enemy design. And again, it's full of you know, absolutely stacked,
0: And I think that, you know, when you talk about the art direction and style of monsters and how they evolve, you know, when you go back and you look at the one from Doom 2, it really was this thing where, you know, a lot of it is kind of being viewed through rose tinted glasses for me, Mm. where I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, that was very iconic. But now when I go back and look at it still, I'm able to remove the glasses slightly and be like... It kind of just looks like a big head on top of these very sort of um, (laughs) thrown together little metal uh, metal legs and whatnot. And then seeing how they were able to adapt that design into something that feels more natural or feels more like a continuation of the overall aesthetic of Doom 2016, right? I think that with one of the central antagonists that is this person that has this kind of exoskeleton suit on it you see a lot of that in the Spider Mastermind in 2016. So you can at least see sort of the fucked up evolution, I suppose, of the visual language of that game. But then when you get to Doom Eternal, it takes it a step back in minimizing or uh, miniaturizing rather the uh, uh, arachnatron, But you still see that sort of design ethos from 2016. And of course you still see the influence from um, Doom 2 and I think that with Doom Eternal, what was really important was that, you know, with every enemy they introduce moving forward from 2016 or, you know, including 2016, you have to have a unique glory kill to go with it. And I think that, you know, the Arachnotron has one of my favorites where you kind of like grab one of the legs or talent or something and stab it in the face on top of the fact that, you know, you can disable that main cannon that hangs out on top of it on its back. And that furthermore just shows You know, every time that it is iterating on Doom and the certain monsters, it is not only, you know, taking into account the design from the original, but it's more importantly paying attention to the functionality from the sort of pacing that Doom 2016 and definitely Doom Eternal has set um, in terms of having enemies that almost are multi-tiered. Like I think even with the Mancubus, you can like destroy their cannons on their arms, but they can still fight you with melee. And that's the same with uh, the arachnotron. So yeah, it's one of those examples of an iconic monster that has not been allowed to kind of fall to the wayside. And if anything, it's been modernized in a way that just feels like a natural continuation of that. And it doesn't have to be, it's always a spectacle when they show up because they're the most, you know, arachnid like creature, but it doesn't always feel like it has to be this big boss spectacle. It's nice to see something that is iconic that adds a new layer of complexity to combat that pops up pretty frequently uh, in the sequel. And, you know, for the next Doom game, inevitably, that it makes, I'm excited to see how they're able to either revive an older enemy or even just, you know, what kind of new tweaks can they give to pre-existing enemies um, that will give combat, you know, that freshness every time you dive into one of those. But we're going to get into your next pick.
1: Yeah, which is a Resident Evil pick, which, you know, was was gonna be natural. Shocking. Shocking. And you know, I was there and it was hard. It was very difficult. So I took the ones I want to pick and thought, you know, well they're both characters that have featured in remakes of the game, so basically across across both. And then there was a clear winner for me. And that would be William Birkin from Resident Evil two.
0: Yeah. That was on my list too. It's on your list, didn't I love it. It is. Look at that. <laughs> so there you
1: go. Well, we could talk about it in a minute, and I could talk about my other pick. and Then we've got both. So there you go. So sure. Yeah, up, let's do that. The other one was Nemesis. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I switched it while we were talking because I was like, "Do I talk about?" he going to picked Nemesis. I'll, I, if, yeah, I'll pick. I'll pick Birkin. He won't pick Birkin. <laughs> 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 okay, so Nemesis. Then we, we will switch to, um, which as I said the only reason I didn't pick was because that. Make doesn't do him any justice, but when I talk about unpredictable enemies back in the, the early days, you know, if the shambler was like this small version of like something catching you off guard, nemesis like completely changed everything. You know, like there's aspects of it in Resident Evil 2, obviously, with the, the tyrant and, and things like that, and like the encounters you get, but it all feels, feels very scripted, and even though it is scripted, in the Resident Evil 3 it didn't feel like it and your safety suddenly disappeared in places you thought you were fine and having a character at that time just show up everywhere when you think that it's not you know, they're just you should close the door you're fine sort of thing was the most terrifying thing I think it really helped to serve the pace of that game you know because granted you know there's that whole debate about should it really be Resident Evil 3 when it is just Resident right. Evil 2 but with some extra bits. You know, it's the extra bits of Resident Evil 2. And is you is know, the true four, if you will. Mm-hmm. Or three, sorry. Um, yeah, so all the same, the shorter nature of it and the more action-orientated and that relentless pace really works for it. You know? And I think it was something they were trying to capture in the remake and didn't quite get exactly right. I think they rushed through the Relentless Pursuit thing a bit too quickly in terms of that.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: But yeah, it was the most Terminator-like thing I'd ever played at that point. You know, and that was one of my early sort of horror of things, you know, seeing that you know it's exoskeleton rising from the flames. And it's just that, the whole thing. You know, so it was a combination of two things I'd grown to love, you know, Michael Myers and the Terminator, you know, all in one, just this constant, force of flesh just coming after you no matter what you do to it it just changes shape comes after you again like that and you know by the end yeah, I love you know it's a common thing in Resident Evil for you know, the big boss enemies to just turn into a gibbering pile of meat you know by the end of any game yeah. <laughs> but there it just felt like I, I love the fury and the aggression that no matter what shape it was taking it was like nope still coming after you still coming still getting you you know, with Birkin, it's very different as we'll get into when we talk about, that you know, where there's this sort of selfishness and tragedy to it that is very human. Mm. Whereas this is, you know, this is yeah. a bioweapon. weapon. You know, it's why it's one of the biggest irks I have with the film Resident Evil Apocalypse because they humanize the, the character that shouldn't be. You know, Birkin's the one you want to do that for. If you're going to do it for anyone, but no, not for Nemesis. Nemesis is just the Terminator you know, meets. That's it. There, one job, get it done, and that's all I had to be. Not come up against you know ninja women, and hope that they're yeah. the <laughs> best, <sort of> thing. <laughs> and making them cry. Uh, yeah. So I, I just absolutely adore Nemesis, and um, it's clear you know the reason why Resident Evil Three is like a great game, you know, in its own right, and it, it's that tricky balance of getting it right in the remake that doesn't work especially well you know, you know it's one of those games i've come to terms with over the years in terms of like yeah okay so it wasn't exactly what i wanted but it still has some of that i mean the opening is just pure brilliance i mean it even you know delves further into that carpenter thing by having some synthy like stabs of music like when he pursues you like that and it's just brilliant i love that opening but
0: then it's gone so <laughs> it's
1: uh, yeah
0: Uh, That was one of the rare things where I played the remake and I was like, why the fuck is this not longer? Because I want that opening segment to be longer so you can really capture the feel of what it was like to play Resident Evil 3 Nemesis back on the PlayStation. Because, you know, my experience with the Resident Evil franchise was never up to date. It was always playing catch up. So by the time I got around to the original trilogy, you know, they had already made four and whatnot. But I didn't get to that for a couple of years because of the fact I just I didn't have... PS2 at the time and whatnot. So I went back and played the original games. And even after playing one and two and then sitting down for three, I was like, all right, I kind of more or less know what to expect. And then the first time Nemesis kind of just like appears through a wall, (laughs) and it's like, it's a jump scare, but it's in the best example of one because it's almost redefining your expectations for a series as a whole because you're like, oh shit, they can do this. And the fact that, you know, the first time I fought him, I killed him because you have that um, that moment where you get to make a choice and yeah. it's like, okay, do I flee to the police station or do I fight the monster? And I chose to fight the monster and actually managed to kill it. But then when he pops up later, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, what was the point of that? And, you know, I'd learn later that has ramifications for the story and whatnot. But it was eye-opening in a way that I think it showed like the – um, I suppose the limitations of previous Resident Evil's that were on the same console, but it also showed the advancements in not only technology, but also in storytelling and in the way in which they could give certain agency to monsters to be more than just a brief milestone before you move on to the next milestone that was very different. And that was part of what was difficult for me to swallow about the Resident Evil 3 remake, in that I was like, okay, we're off to this great start. I love how they have handled the pursuit of Nemesis and whatnot, and the, him pursuing Jill. And as soon as they move on from that, I was like, no, 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 go back to what was, go back to the earlier stages of Nemesis because it was this game of cat and mouse that, you know, after that first boss fight with him, and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I whooped his ass and then he shows up again. <laughs> that, if anything, just instilled more fear in a way that. I had not felt with a Resident Evil game. you know. I'd felt fear and been scared from different aspects of Resident Evil, but the idea of an ever-persisting threat that was outside of my ability to kill at that point or even at certain points later in the game, that gave everything that I did, that gave the survival aspect of the survival horror that much more sort of urgency or importance because I was like second-guessing my equipment management even more than yeah. I already was for a survival horror game because I was like, well... If this motherfucker shows up in this next section and I kind of piss through ammo on these basic (laughs) fodder enemies or whatnot, then I'm really going to be screwed. And I could find myself in a place where I've saved and there's nothing that I can really do to get past that next bit, Um, which I definitely uh, backed myself into a corner a couple of times where it's like almost no ammo, a knife and a couple of rounds. And then all of a sudden I've got a nemesis fight out of nowhere. (laughs) Um, And that, again, it just kind of propelled my idea of what Resident Evil as a series was, and it was nice to see a monster return, and it not just being automatically a new form. It was more about appreciating the form that it was presented in originally, and the fact that again it could just be this ever-persisting kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it. Uh, I mean, the problem with Resident Evil is like I could have picked god knows how many things and said, so, yeah, "Yeah, I really." <laughs> yeah. You know, when I first started making the list, it was the Bandersnatch from Veronica because I have such a soft spot for that enemy design, but. It just yeah, I, it's memories specifically with these two that we're talking about. Is you know they they are from the games that I love the most at the time and the ones that really just hit me. Yeah, you know I mean, but I think every one of those early games has something. You know, it has one at least one enemy where you're like, fuck, now I'm going to remember that forever, sort of thing, like that. And you do. Yeah, you know? and those early games probably have several each time. Yeah, you know, Resident Evil Two, it's like long timer for me for many reasons but the fact that you know Birkin's one of many you know you have the liquor the redesigned zombies that look so much better and you know you had the crocodile the alligator thing you had the oh, just there's so many cool things in that game <laughs> that just to this day makes me annoyed that it's not like easily playable you know when the original when the original is, is you know the fact that two and three specifically aren't like ported to modern consoles like um Directors cut director of Resident Evil is you know, on PlayStation, and every other version, it's daft. You know? we, we need them back because yeah. you know, I was thinking about it this week, playing, replaying Metal Gear Solid for the first time in ages. It's like it occurred to me that I haven't played this since about twenty seventeen on PS because it was the last time I could. And then mm. some yeah. weird thing with the PS Vita meant it didn't work properly. It was all speeded up in places or slowed down. It was going wrong and like that. And so, yeah, it was a bit of a a bittersweet one. I think I played a bit of it on PC, but it's not really the same. And, yeah, but yeah, so it occurs to me that it's about the same time since I played Resident Evil 2 and 3 as they were, because, you know, they were on there as well. And it's just... I'm going to regret ever getting rid of that console, you know, every time I think about it, because it's like, if I'd known at the time, that I'd never be able to play those games for the next decade nearly. I might have been a bit sad, <laughs> <laughs> thinking, and anyway, I, I would have kept it. But yeah, Resident Evil is just fantastic for that. But you, you have a pick next,
0: so <laughs> I do, and it, <laughs> and it's a great uh, it's a great sort of one to build off of, of uh, Nemesis because as uh, we both had picked originally, William Birkin was my pick for the Resident Evil franchise. And I tell you what, when we make lists, you know maybe barring the game of the year which can be quite excruciating to kind of like check things off mm-hmm. this was pretty excruciating picking one monster from Resident Evil because I had to scratch like Regenerator off of about five different times and <laughs> you know all the very like liquor and whatnot and even like the zombie dogs I have a super sweet spot for and you know even Lisa Trevor to a certain extent but you know for me really it was William Burkin and, and for the reason that you mentioned in that you know while Nemesis in the games is this killing machine is presented only as that right and you know much like you with apocalypse that's my qualm is that it's like no 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 no. he says stars and then he tries to kill stars and that's the extent of that monster there's no humanizing him whereas with William Birkin you get that backstory you get to see you know the cost of what occurred with not only involvement with Umbrella but with his the ramifications that happened with his family and whatnot and that was an aspect that I really loved about the RE2 remake Mm -hmm. right was that it takes that foundation from the original and it builds upon it in a way that felt very natural and like a continuation. Um, and I think ultimately for me, like I'm a big, as you know, like a big body horror freak, right? So this was the first boss I think that I encountered in Resident Evil where it was not just the instance of immediately you're presented with this like Meaty monstrosity, as you said, right? It was more about the fact that, you know, you learn, oh, this was actually a person. And then there's the various forms of uh, William yeah. Birkin. I think that that initial one where he still is about 75% humanoid, but then he's got this massive arm that's got a, a giant eyeball in it, right? Yeah. And so, it's even better so in, um and I think the remake, right? Because yeah. you get to run around and see it more in uh better detail. And I, that's another thing about the remake for Resident Evil 2, where They were so, you know, I think perfect in taking those designs and not fucking with them too much, right? I think that's always the fear with a lot of remakes is that they're going to tweak something just enough that it almost doesn't resemble what came before it. And with something like Monster Design, uh, which I think, you know, when we're talking about Resident Evil, we're both so precious about, one little thing can completely change your perspective of it. It can completely change the significance of why a specific monster design is unique, whether it's in the realm of Resident Evil or even just, you know, horror games in general. And that was one thing that I think the Resident Evil 2 remake doesn't get enough credit for. Um, But, you know, furthermore with Birkin, the various forms that he takes, even if it becomes and grows into more of this monstrosity of meat, um, each of the iterations of Birkin, I think they do a good enough job of Retaining at least a sliver of what the original one looked like, but still building upon it in ways that were shocking, that were surprising. And, you know, as we've mentioned, the um, backstory and whatnot of Birkin and the family and everything that you learn more about it, it just becomes more tragic um, in a way that, you know, the best forms of either literature or film, when they're handling monsters and telling their tales, um, it really did feel like an example of, I suppose, more, I don't know, more mature storytelling, but it felt more natural, I suppose. It felt like it was following that very traditional arc between contrasting the monster with the creator, but at the same time, you know, it has that wonderfully fucked up varied designs that Resident Evil is known for. Um, And again, like similar to with Nemesis, right? It was like initially facing the recurring form over and over. With Birkin, every time that you face him, it's a new version. And that was the first instance that I'd had with that. Right. I think nowadays you're kind of, people would say like, well, what's the big deal about that? But for the time in getting to fight multiple permutations of the same creature, but it's just different enough every time that it doesn't feel almost like, I don't know, the old, uh, 16 bit thing where it was kind of like, okay, we're going to have the same enemy or the same boss, but it's a different shade or a different hue of color. And that's the only difference. This was the first instance I saw where I was like, oh no, this is the same monster, but it, is completely different and all of a sudden it's got like a super attack that's up its sleeve that i wasn't prepared for yeah um
1: so what i love about this character is just like I said, that human side uh, It you know, he's not like a nice person particularly you know he and his wife especially fleshed out in the remake is that you know, they care more about the work than they do the door you know, very stereotypically that sort of thing yeah, they really do, and it kind of imprints itself onto Birkin as he mutates when he has, you know, what he wants, and what the yeah you know, the G virus parasite wants as well, which you know, to basically have a host that has a similar DNA structure, which is Sherry, his daughter. You know, and that's why he have this pursuit of her throughout. You know, that that's why he's after her, not because of some sort of like old fashioned like need. Oh, it's my daughter, I need her sort of thing there's probably a little bit of that there but the majority of the reason is selfishly like I want to continue I want to keep doing it and you yeah, know that's a really fucked up body horror thing to think about you know like that hey. <laughs> he wants to impregnate his own daughter with his parasite sort of thing it's just like it's
0: mm-hmm.
1: subtly sort of mentioned but it, when you really think about it it's like yeah that's um, unpleasant in a game full of unpleasant characters anyway I mean, Chief yeah. Chief Irons <laughs> is like bad enough in, in the remake but I think in the original game he was just there was something a bit more sinister about how much wasn't said about him that was implied like that. And I think, you know, the remake kind of explains that a bit more. But yeah, <laughs> the stuff, everything that Birkin does and just every time he comes back and changes and those eyeball things are like, yeah, you know, as you said, you know, half the course in so many enemy designs in, in recent years. But it's just like so striking. Like I love those original designs as well from the 98 version it's just like all the concept art as well and all the, the promotional art that features the different types of Birkin in themselves are great, but like in the game and the way they look is so close to it. It's remarkable. You know, I mean, Resident Evil, the original game, yeah, you know, really does look poor in a lot of ways now because it's just early PlayStation. Makes sense. Yeah, you know, I think 98, you know, was just like this... Perfect year for so many reasons beyond PlayStation. Yeah, it was the year. is Stuff like Half Life as well, and Resident Evil Two was like such a massive step. It felt bigger in scope. It looked better. It felt more cinematic. It felt you know, more varied in its story. And Birkin is so central to that, and I think he does become this sort of tragic character. And he is basically being driven by his work to do unspeakable things in. My- He's like the Jeffrey Coombs character of this thing, really. You know, he, yeah. I mean, if there was a movie back then, he, Jeffrey Coombs would have played William Burke. Let's um, make no mistake about that. And you know that's part of the great appeal of it because it does fit that sort of Stuart Gordon body horror power fantasy sort of thing. You know, with the unfortunate sexual undertones uh, in this case. But um, yeah, yeah, really. but yeah, it's. Um, for a video game to do that is quite, at that time was quite impressive and get away with it. Yeah, I suppose because as a medium it was, not quite as a uh, wide and big as it is now. But still, yeah, you know, it's just one of those many reasons why Resident Evil Two is so fascinating as a game. You know, all these years later, and the remake just, I think, why it's so good is because it understands a lot of that and doesn't shy away from yeah. it.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Another example of, I suppose, monster design or just game design in general that is a little bit ahead of the curve mm. in that regard. and It would take a couple of years, I think, for people to not only appreciate it for that, but more importantly, you know, getting to see a remake that embraces that and expands on that um, is definitely something that I think was partially what made RE2 sort of that sender for remakes in general. Yes. It was like, oh no, you can expand on things and you can flesh things out. You better do it pretty fucking carefully so you don't stray too, too far. But I think Resident Evil 2 kind of gave perhaps some other developers or studios sort of the uh, the go-ahead with that. Yes. It's just, if you're going to make some changes or expanding, it better be in line with what the groundwork was. Um, but we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll dive into the rest of our picks for this monster mash of ours. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. And we are back from our break. And, Neil, what is your next pick?
1: My next pick, again, going in chronological order, is 2012 onwards, uh, XCOM's Chrysalid. Uh, the Chrysalid. There you go. Yeah, nice. I mean, God, no enemy in recent years has filled me with the kind of dread that seeing a Chrysalid does. <laughs> It's just... It, likewise it, I mean, in a game that is turn-based where you know every movement counts having an enemy that's almost like a cheat code in itself for the, the opposition that can just run at these seemingly random amount, you know, speeds to get to you infect you or survivors on the battlefield with this like horrible sort of glowing gelatinous blob of like and yeah turn them into carriers zombies and whatever First time they ever appeared in the mission, yeah. I think I just felt such horrible panic and dread because you know XCOM at its best is when it does start throwing those new enemies at you. And again, that seems to be a common theme with sort of going with it. It's the enemies that sort of surprise you. You know, on the surface, this sort of you know um, antlion-like creature, you know, is basically make you go oh okay so it's one of those yeah fodder blah 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 does this maybe it's got like a poison whatever but yeah that sheer speed and you know in the later versions of the burrowing power they've got where they just can just turn up somewhere else and if you haven't prepared mm-hmm. your turn right enough you know you are vulnerable as hell you know they, they can just pop up and you never had any preparation for them and suddenly they can swing about very quickly they have that armor as well which doesn't help you know and it just it's such a horrific enemy in terms of like the thing it does to your characters and to other characters you know especially with permadeath like it's not bad enough to you know like lose a character you love or yeah who's carried you through so many missions is like a total badass but then for their bodies to sort of end up being like the host to these creatures and just being used that way it's just like a desecration that you know, goes beyond a lot of the <laughs> other versions of desecration that can happen in that game. You know, and um, yeah, it's something about it. It does very much call back to that sort of Xenomorph thing of like a skittering creature that, you know, is, has two missions in life is to breed and kill and that's it. And um, they, it just so happens both of those can happen to you, you know, and uh, yeah, it, it's a remarkable creature. Design-wise, sound-wise, you know, very simple, but it works. And I think it is just that unpredictability in terms of, like, where they're going to show up, how fast they go. And it, yeah, one of the worst things is thinking you've prepped it, got the Overwatch shot on, knowing they might pop up. They pop up and you miss that shot. Because you know <sighs> that you're fucked at that point. Because they're going to hit you, in most cases, like that. And, you know... They, not to go too inside baseball and the whole tactics things, but you know, it's like you start to sort of tailor your team knowing they're going to come in later playthroughs where you just go, yeah, okay, so we're going to get crystallized around this point, so we need to, you know, have someone who's a blademaster who can sort of parry this and do that when they get close. and Yeah, but it's always something. There's always something with those fuckers. I think they were most effective in, like, Enemy Within. And there was um, a mission I remember so greatly where you know it was down by like docks and things and they appeared and it was such a fraught encounter because they just they had some sort of advantage in terms of where they got to the bodies and it turned into a living nightmare and just i think i lost some soldiers in that one that i'd had for ages for the first time like that when i was really sort of starting to master the game and understand it a bit better and it was just yeah it was horrific yeah like that they're an enemy that still to this day you know, no matter how much i've played xcom it, 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 they still get me you know, there, there's no it, there's mastery there's understanding but at the same time they just they have something about them like no other enemy in that game that just fills me with dread the second they, they're shown up to be they show up in a mission or they're shown to be in a mission coming up
0: what a great pick for a game that is filled with you know monsters and creatures that have fucked up entire runs uh, <laughs> that i've had with some beloved soldiers and whatnot. But yeah, you know, it's one of those things where people talk about, you know, how scary something is, how scary a monster or a game is, but, you know, the cost of losing a soldier that you've been building in XCOM is unlike almost any other experience in gaming. And, you know, every time you're in a mission, specifically, I'm thinking about like those escort missions, right? Where, you know, you kind of blow through the initial enemies, you find your target, your VIP... You start to extract them, and then you know on the way to the extraction zone, all of a sudden Ugh. a crystalid pops up, or a couple of them or it jumps out of a one corner of fog of war that you didn't uh, you know properly investigate or vet, <laughs> and all of a sudden it kind of just like it throws up all the red flags, and all of a sudden you, there's a possibility that this run is completely fucked, even if you know you've been uh, you know on top of your a game and whatnot for seventy five percent of the mission. And that really is the beauty of XCOM, and I think that when people talk about XCOM. They have a tendency to hyper-focus on, you know, the percentage of hit chances or, you know, how often criticals occur. But it really is monsters that, you know, it can be a small variable. It could be just, oh, it's got armor or, oh, it's got poison. Or it can, you know, do that desecration, as you mentioned. But the Chrysalids seem to be the one that has all of these nasty surprises rolled into one creature that, as you said has an insane rate of speed that all of a sudden it kind of just even one square too many that you made somebody rush. That could be the end for that soldier, or it could be the move that ultimately derails your entire strategy. Cause all of a sudden you have to deviate resources to one zone instead of playing, you know, mm-hmm. a grid by grid sort of basis. Um, but yeah, talk about like the surprise factor and then immediately just Fearful for more reasons than one. That's a perfect pick.
1: It is. It's a good. I say, if I do say so myself. <laughs> uh, how about you? What's your next one?
0: Well, talking about monsters that will completely fuck up your run, I have to go with the Xenomorph ah, from mm-hmm. Alien: Isolation, um, which ultimately is still probably the best example of enemy AI I think I've encountered in a game. Um, you know, as we've talked about plenty of times on the show. Adapting Alien has had mixed results and Aliens over the years has had a lot of mixed results, either not understanding the tone of the original film or the importance of xenomorphs from the Aliens perspective side of things. And with Alien Isolation, it felt like the perfect distillation of what made xenomorphs terrifying in Ridley Scott's original film. More importantly, if you're only going to have two monsters for a game, You need to have them be really strong examples of not only AI, but of understanding the source material and the threats that they pose. And, you know, the the Joes that are monitoring the ship, you know, those are perfectly fine, but there is nothing as terrifying as going into a vent to hide. And then you turn around and there's a xenomorph staring you in the face or you know, the various uh, auto kills that it has where it sneaks up on you, whether, you know, you're cowering in a locker and you make too much noise and it rips the door off and then grabs you. If it sneaks up behind you and you're cowering under a desk and you just see those talons kind of come into frame. Um, I think also what is really notable about the xenomorph is the fact that it's unkillable, right? That's one of those things that maybe has become a trend post isolation. Yeah. But, you know, the first time that I encountered the Xenomorph and didn't know much about Alien Isolation other than, you know, oh, hey, it's a new Alien game. I'm not going to not play that and got a little too trigger happy with the shotgun or with the flamethrower and was like, oh, wait, no, all of a sudden my go to for how to deal with threats in games all of a sudden is no longer viable. That was a big eye opening moment to just how the entire game is built around that. But it doesn't necessarily have this sort of artificial difficulty to it, if you will, it's taking the monster, it's understanding what makes it scary. It's removing a certain level of agency and empowerment that comes with giving a player weapons that, you know, they traditionally have in games. And if anything, you don't necessarily begrudge the game for having that approach. If anything, you know, people like us, we champion that because of the fact that it makes it feel legitimate. It seems like a natural understanding of what makes xenomorphs terrifying Um, And I think ultimately, the player themselves has to get creative with the survival aspect of survival horror, which not a great deal of survival horror games these days, it seems actually do, right? Mm. It's mostly regulated to, you know, bullet counting, making sure you have enough med packs. But in isolation, you really do have to get creative with the variables that are given to the player. I think about things like either the Molotov or the um, pipe bomb. It's like, sure those will make the xenomorph retreat briefly, but they also act as lures. And, you know, even the melee weapon, right? You could bang on something and then hide, and that will lead the xenomorph to that area. So I would say alien isolation was one of my favorite examples of great AI, but what it feels like to actually be hunted by this unrelenting hunter.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I gambled on you picking it so I could fit something else (laughs) in. (laughs) So that's good. I'm glad that worked out. (laughs) uh, It is such a great example. I mean... You know, in modern gaming, since that game came out, it's much like um, the Mordor games, you know, where you look at it and go, why is no one else doing something like that? You know, why is no one else really trying it exactly like that? And in that game's case, it's, you know, they copyrighted it. But here it's like, well, why not? Why not try it? And, you know, only this year we've finally sort of seen a game that's tried it, done it well, which is Amnesia the Bunker, you know, which is just becoming more and more efficient at making that work as well so you know the best thing about that it's an indie developer doing that it's so fantastic but yeah this is just such a wonderful you know it was the first time in ages i felt that same nemesis sort of fear of the unknown and the unpredictability of what's going on in that sense you know um, and having it in this aesthetic that is, you know, taken from Ridley Scott's film. So just enrapturing, you know, just like, it's the perfect mix. Curiosity will push you forward, but at the same time, you're always aware of what is out there, you know, and what, you know, you can handle the working Joes if you know what to do right, but you don't want the fights to take too long. You don't want to get too noisy because you know what will happen. You know, i so say it's, it's the perfect sort of fodder because they'd be fodder in any other case, you'd be able to run away from them, knock them about a bit, no problem, easy going, but yeah, because you had that extra factor with any encounter of anything that isn't the alien, it changes the dynamic constantly, and yeah, just to this day, it's just such a remarkable piece of design, you know having the alien be as unpredictable as it is, you know even now, like nearly ten years on from this game. Oh, God. I know. <laughs> it's just amazing. There's just almost nothing like it, you know, that really captures that unpredictability. I think beyond what we just said, you know, um, there have been some smaller indie games even that have done you know, similar sort of things into sort of having that unpredictability in uh, that kind of way. But it's just, yeah, I- I'm glad that that's starting to become like a place where people are looking and going, yeah, we should do something like that. Do something with a pursuer that changes things up each time and makes it interesting. And yeah, that's the evolution of that idea has taken a while to get here, but now that we're getting there, great. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it just wouldn't be possible without this wonderful game. And it's, you know, great representation of alien, that there's never been a better one. than and, and even, even with the good games we've had since, it, it's, they've not even come close to that you know, uh, you know the game that was um, very famously not liked very much by IGN but uh, yeah, that's, a, that's opinions <laughs> for you, you know, that's fine that's, that's yeah. how it goes but you can be on the wrong side of history with, with any media, that's um, the way but that's, you know, personal feelings happen like that. <laughs> and uh, they, they change and they change but yeah I'm glad that stood the test of time that people still love it so much. I think it doesn't work without that factor. You know, it's the reason why people talk about Nemesis like they do and things like that. The idea of being chased, you know, is always just one of the most thrilling things of a horror game. You know, it's like, because it's the one thing you can't control in the same way. So yeah. And,
0: and if you have a, a lackluster xenomorph, then, uh, you know, it doesn't make the Nostromo or the uh, sort of Vastopol Station, you know, the haunted house in space that it should be. Yeah. So I think if anything, you know, the best uh, best enemy design in that universe really does allow for that classical feel while still being terrifying in new ways to really pop. But uh, what was your next pick?
1: I wanted to pick something zombie-based at some point in this. And surprisingly, despite my yeah you know, preference for slow zombies, I picked the least slow zombie in Dying Light, which is the Volatile. And... Um, Now, there's several reasons for this. It's because as much as I love the slow zombies in the original Dying Light and how effective that is in terms of, like, atmosphere, there's such a great faulty vibe to that game, especially in the early games with the the lights and the music. And I love it. But when they start introducing early on the idea that when night falls, there's one, you know, all the normal zombies get riled up anyway. But then there's one <laughs> that only comes out at night and it's you know the old I Am Legend fucking super zombies, if you will, but you know, on steroids in this case. And yeah, the first time they introduced that, like the set piece of it, like becoming night and having to escape from it, among other, the other things, it's just like, oh shit. Because not only are you having to navigate like crowds of zombies in the dark, whilst trying not to give away your position too much, and parkouring all over the place, which you know is the great thing about dying light that you can sort of escape in this very kinetic, you know, free form way. But yeah, the minute one locks onto you, and you've got to just go around the environment, and if you don't know the environment, you are going to be in for a bad time at that point. And it is just, it's <laughs> frightening. I mean, even as you get later into it, and you know you get used to the idea of maybe taking one on like that, or where you have to take one on, it's still just the most intimidating enemy in the game. And it was, you know, one of the complaints I think with the sequel is like they didn't feel as much of a threat as they used to because there were other ones that were fast and stuff like that that would really sort of get on your nerves more. But, you know, I think it, they've patched that in in the last year to make that very intense, you know. And so once again, you know, the Volatiles have become just like this horrible thing to deal with, you know, this force. If you see one in the no- by vicinity, it's just dread pure dread and now in Light 2 they do just sort of roam a lot more so you have fewer safe spots where you're oh well if I don't go there then I'll be fine like that they turn up everywhere and it's just not fun and yeah you know, but you know night is sometimes needed and yeah that first encounter running away at night is just something that's burned into my brain because it just shifts the Attitude, the tone, and everything, really quickly from like this you know, hazy sunshine, zombies with synthie music, and smacking them in the head with machetes and things like that, and then suddenly it becomes you know turns the tables. You are no longer the, the, the apex predator of the place, so to speak. You are mm. being hunted by this thing that is just fast, can jump, can do all the things you like that. You know one of the smart things that the game did that you know was. Slightly before its time, there was that idea of having it, you know, beyond Dark Souls. It was like having an invading player be the volatile, and like take over it, and like having this face off against it. Now it kind of cut back on the idea of the volatile being this dangerous thing in one way, but the new unpredictability of it, of being invaded at night by someone who could be really good, and it was the most deadly one you would ever ever faced. And I think that's actually one of the smarter things. The Second game did when it did update it was make those volatiles feel more like that, but so yeah, it's one of those things where I, I'm actually glad that they sort of you know, didn't just go with the slow ones and the usual zombie types. They if there is like a fast zombie in those games that yeah, I, I give or take, yeah, they're they're the most annoying shits in both games. To be fair. <laughs> Because you you hear them screech, they screech like maniacs, and then you've got to fucking knock them off everything, they come after you. But that one, you know, when the Volatile comes up, it's just horrifying. I mean, the second game has a level early on set in a hospital where you just basically are pursued and having to hide from one. You know, like, you don't really have any way out. You know, you can't just leave the building like you can in most open-world missions because you're scripted to be in there. And it becomes really intense and you know, it's a really good early indicator of what that game did well when it did it really well and yet the volatile is always at the centre of that you know it just it makes the night time terrifying you know what you do because there's always there's tempting things to do and get you know whether it be just better XP gains for the longer you stay out the more you survive and you've got that risk reward nature but, yeah when you get caught up in those it is um Yeah. Adrenaline does flow.
0: While the Dying Light franchise is largely, you know, I would describe my relationship with it as two ships passing in the night. (laughs) Um, I only ever played like the first three hours of the first game, but I do remember the first time that I got caught out at night and then had to deal with them. And to your point, right. It was the thing where I had barely played the game. So I hadn't been able to memorize the layouts of streets or the areas and whatnot. And so all of a sudden when you crank the volume up on those monsters and the intensity, and you really do need to rely on sort of your quick twitch muscle to like, be like, Oh, okay. I need to go this way because then that leads to this area. And then there's a way for me to get onto the roof over here. Like when you have to rely on your memory of locations, but you haven't spent enough time with the game really to get to that point. It does dial up the intensity to what you would expect You know, it's like in 28 Days Later when Jim's running from the infected for the first time and he's like, oh, fuck, like I just woke up from a coma and all (laughs) of a sudden I've got these sprinters and whatnot. And so, you know, for a game to capture a primal fear, which is, you know, running zombies, um, that is something that I think is really difficult to do in games. And, you know, I'm sure once you've played through the game for long enough and then you get to the sequel, like some of that wears off, you start to become familiar those encounters don't seem as stressful always, uh, depending, I suppose, on where you're at in the game health wise and whatnot. But I still think that, you know, there needs to be credit given to developers when they're dealing with a type of monster or something as you know, readily available in games as zombies are and able to still instill a level of fear that, you know, people used to have the first time they saw zombies in movies or even nowadays, yeah. not to say that. You know, zombies are uh, not able to be terrifying nowadays. But I think that with the overabundance of them, there has been, you know, the focus shifting from either the zombies to like the human threat or just a bunch of shamblers. But even with runners sometimes in zombie media, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, okay, like, yeah, I've seen them run before. But for a developer to actually put the player in the shoes of somebody that is contending with that threat and have the adrenaline of that situation really be ramped up. Um, that's quite a feat in and of itself. And I think that, you know, if anything, this is just yet another conversation that is an indication that I need to stop fucking about <laughs> and check out Dying Light and some, some uh, some I suppose, more than just the hope, opening uh, handful of hours. Yeah,
1: yeah, like that first game is just a particular kind. I think it's just contained enough now compared to the sequel that it's um, uh, it works a lot better overall. I think there's great ambition in the sequel, but there's something about that first game that just, the music, the mood, everything is just like, mm, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, you know, I like both games, but that one is just, did something for me as a zombie fan, you know, that I really enjoyed. Mm. And the parkour, you know, outside Mirror's Edge, you know, we haven't had many games that do it right, and that, yeah, is just smashing. Yeah. And you, if you're a scaredy cat of the night, it co ops the. <laughs> so, so you can feed someone else to the fucking things. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> well, while we're keeping things in the realm of the undead, um, I'm going to go in a maybe not traditional undead fashion, but more of the infected fashion. And my next pick was going to be Clickers from The Last of Us. Ah. We're not going to talk about monsters. And one of us isn't going to bring up The Last of Us. But uh, <laughs> for me, you know, Clickers and I think overall, you um, Naughty Dog's approach to zombies. And at that point, when the original game was released, for me personally, I was pretty tired of zombies. You know, I was fully on board with The Walking Dead, the series. I was reading the comics like crazy. So I think there was just a point where I was really inundated with zombie media to the degree that I was like, do we really need another zombie game? And when The Last of Us came out, you know, apart from the fact that they had that story that was, uh, had those fantastic performances, had those really, Fantastic characters that we chatted about, you know with uh, Jake Decker when we had him on the show, and then when we had our buddy Harrison Abbott on the show to chat about the last of us part two. you know the Last of us is one of those series that really was an outlier in zombie infected media, and you know the clickers for me, I think instantly were the hallmark of really smart design in taking you know zombies and infected and elevating them to something that was even more terrifying. Yeah. But more importantly, I think, again, kind of like my point about the um, Arachnotron and the Spider Mastermind, it's the way in which that monster has evolved between the two games. Mm. So initially, you know, in the original game, that is a monster that enforces with the player like, hey, noise discipline is of the utmost importance. You learn that you can sneak around them. You better have a shiv on hand if you want to drop them pretty easily and silently but more importantly, you can lure them, right? Yeah. So you can lob things to either different corners of a room to get them to move and whatnot. But I think more importantly than that, the way that that mechanic evolves from The Last of Us to The Last of Us Part Two is, you know, part of the reason is the tech behind it allows for more enemies to be on screen, which then allows for situations where you have the infected and then you have scavengers, factions, what have you, occupying the same space. So then you could actually use that lure ability to make the um, clickers into like weapons themselves. Yeah. So I would lure a group of clickers into a group of scavengers and take them out. And then I could just like sneak right by them because of the fact that they're blind and they only rely on sound. Um, I think also a really smart facet of monster design is hearing before you actually see the monsters. Yes. And with Clickers, you know, very early on, you learn just how deadly they are and the fact that, you know, it's one hit, one kill with them. They grab you. You get one of those fantastic animations of them either, you know, ripping a chunk of Ellie's flesh out or, you know, trying to rip Joel's uh, head open. And the fact that they established that early on and then every single time I would play the game, I would hear that clicking sound or I would hear that very unique groan of theirs and it would immediately you know, set the hairs on the back of my neck on edge. And the fact that that feeds into the survival horror aspect of the last of us, where it's like all of a sudden, depending on the difficulty, every single bullet counts in a way that it didn't before I came in touch with the clicker. Because if I don't, can't craft a shiv, if I don't have the proper melee weapon, all of a sudden those two bullets that I have, they have to go to the clicker because if that thing gets alerted, I'm fucked either way. Um, and so For me, it was really about how they were able to introduce a monster, make it terrifying, but then not allowing the utilization of that monster from like the director AI standpoint to not make them a viable threat every step of the way. Um, And I think that they really did reinforce the survival horror aspect of that series in a way that was very refreshing. Um, Not to say that, you know, other games didn't have monsters that, you know, had more deadliness and this and that, but I think that the clickers were really the whole package in a way that not all the other monsters in that series have been, um, at least for my money.
1: Yeah. I, the thing I always said about this, you know, I think discussed it before when we were talking about the games. You know, for me, the Harry Adam Knight book, The Fungus, was always great source of um, mm. body horror that really sort of connected with me with The Last of Us. The idea that you know, your sight and your mind being taken up by a fungus so to the point where you end up having to develop echolocation to fucking find things. Just crazy. <laughs> yeah, I love that, you know. Yeah. And yeah, so that, that was something that made it really resonate with me early on. I think those two things, the body horror nature of like an infection, you know, normally you know, oh you're dead, you come back to life. Not quite body horror horror in the way that you would expect. You know, you you're dead, you don't care. Sort of thing, but yeah, you know, to still be alive and to be manipulated like that by you know fungus you know, is just frightening. You know, I think it's one of the things the show did quite well in some episodes and really sort of ramming home is the idea of like how awful the idea would be to lose yourself like that to that. You know, and how the the, the fungus could work. But yeah, the, the, it's such. I mean, it's an iconic enemy design now. You know, the, the noise is iconic. You yeah. know, you cannot separate the two and uh yeah, it's just i think it's, it's a great combination you know i think the cordyceps thing the whole taking something from nature and applying it to humans is like the source of so many viral outbreak stories anyway uh, in real life and uh in fiction but it's just a really smart thing to do yeah? the whole cordyceps infection of insects and how that yeah, you know, if you ever watch those videos of like what happens to insects when they get cordyceps, and it, it is just fucking gruesomely ghoulish. You know, to think that they are just mm. being puppeteered like that, and that that could happen to a person. Like, obviously, it can't. But you know, in this world, just the idea of like that little extra, you know, that little science fiction kick to something that is um, in our everyday world is just a great source of horror.
0: And giving a monster a handicap of removing its sight and somehow making it even more deadly is that great sort of checks and balances approach, I think, to monster design Mm. or just enemy design in general. Um, It really does kind of promote the idea that uh, if, you know, the player decides to use that handicap and be like, oh, yeah, you know, like that's pretty manageable. All of a sudden they realize very, very quickly that uh, uh, that is not the case. And by the same token, um, it reinforces the sort of stealth element of that game. And anybody that's played The Last of Us and has played on anything more than the normal difficulty will uh, you know, chime in, And I'm sure, to the fact that, uh, yeah, that game, if you're not on top of that stealth aspect, then you're going to have a pretty short run of things. And it's nice to see enemies that kind of reinforce that, that don't let people kind of ever have an easy out and whatnot to uh, combat or encounters. No. But uh, yeah, let's get into your last pick.
1: So yeah, I went with the Phantoms from Prey. Yeah. Again, another game where oh, I, nice. I could have picked several of the things that are in there, you know, there's bigger things like sure. the nightmare and the land the moonshark, shark you know, in Prey and Prey Mooncrash are like great, yeah. You know, you know. the land shark the, the moonshark is basically Tremors version of the Phantom. But the Phantoms, you know, again goes back to what we're saying about William Burke, and it's the tragedy of them that they aren't they were people and that that they still speak like lines of their uh, just burned in their mind, you know. That they're thinking still, you know, and still blurting out words of who they were. But yeah, they're so very much different. And just, I mean, the design of the creatures in the Typhon in the game anyway is just yeah, so simple. Oh, you know, inky black, little shape shifting creatures. Sure, we've done it before but yeah, that evolution of it from just like the mimics to the phantoms is just something else, you know, like that, again, we get, you were just saying, with uh, the the last of us and the clickers, you know, about the sound and how it's important to hear before you see sometimes, and the phantoms are a great example of that, because I said, they're gibbering, you know, words of like, you can tell that they're not human anymore when you hear them, but it's just having them chattering and muttering, you know, not the first enemy sort of to do that, yeah, you know, there's great games out there. I Think one of my favorite examples is like the siren games, yeah, you know, where you hear them just muttering to themselves and shrieking themselves the mm-hmm. then just being preoccupied. It's really bloody unnerving, you know, just to hear something human going on. Um, I think the film when uh, when Evil Looks is uh, has a little bit of that to it, you know? oh, yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, that for me is a great example of. That because you just have this instant sort of hesitation, you know, when you hear it you know, like that, and yeah, you, you try to sort of figure out where it's coming from, what kind of phantom it will be. Because you know, you have those different elemental types, and, and some of them are tougher than others because of who they've, um, who they were before, and it's just, yeah, that they are, you know, by all rights, a regular enemy in that game. But they um, give a nice sci-fi twist to the zombie idea, you know. I think that's probably why I like it a lot. Is just that this it's somewhere between the thing, invasion of the body snatchers, and you know, a, a classic zombie thing. You know, they are, yeah. I suppose event horizon-ish almost as well. It, it's just something about this sort of cosmic body horror that just feels. Yeah, it gets me creepy crawlies up on me, you know. It's uh, that kind of enemy, uh, and yeah, getting coming back to the design simple, effective, and just that sound design carries it a long way. And you know, I think it's always worth mentioning this with uh, the games from Arcane with that when you have horror elements in it that really do add this sort of unpredictability. You have a, a survival horror and you have the free-form nature of the of an immersive sim and using those two things together really works well you know I, I think a dishonored and there's so many ways of that you know I think of those bigger enemies like the nightmare you know, where you are being pursued in places by it and it is just something you you have to again remember the layout of where you are to really just escape quickly and yeah it's just again one of those enemies. Will always stick with me you know the first encounters the first time you ever see them and that telltale sort of sign of when they're coming and yeah uh, it just we've discussed why we love prey but yeah I think the typhon are such a massive part of that and the phantoms I think are an under underappreciated one when you consider you know the mimics get a lot of the uh, attention and then probably the moon shark and that so yeah it is just a, a special sort of enemy for me
0: I think for me, the most notable thing about the phantoms is the way they move, right? Yeah. Which the way that they kind of like almost phase shift strafe you when you're kind of targeting them or even when you see them initially. And that really speaks to, I think, ultimately the unpredictability of the Typhon threat mm-hmm. all throughout Talos 1. I love, you know, from the um, from the mimics to the them and then even to like the nightmare at times when that thing will randomly just pop up and you almost have to kind of like, look all around you if you don't see it immediately. And it's like, oh, it can come from anywhere. Um, And that has always been an aspect, I think, of the creature design in Prey, where it was the unpredictability. But then that also speaks to, I think, the overall immersive sim nature of it. Because right, the player themselves is going to be unpredictable in Mm -hmm. how they choose to tackle Talos 1. So filling that station with threats that are equally as unpredictable, um, I think, is what allowed how few monster designs there actually are in that game to not outstay their welcome, I suppose, in the sense of like a traditional game where it's like, okay, you introduce a monster, but then within the next hour or so you're going to introduce a new type and then a new type and then just kind of like snowballing. Whereas really with Prey, it's more about the quality of a smaller pool of enemies than rather this large quantity of designs that at the end of the day, they all basically play the same or they don't have unique characteristics to the degree that the Typhons do in Prey. Um, which, you know, I I wrote a column for Dread XP about the mimics because that stood out to me. But when you mention like the typhons or the phantoms themselves and the tragedy behind them, much, you know, akin to like Birkin and whatnot, and seeing a corruption of humanity or, you know, this monstrous form really getting to be the ultimate uh form of somebody's own hidden, you know, monstrosities inside themselves, um, getting to see the phantoms and then having that small voice in the back of your head that reminds you that like, oh no, these used to be people, not only people, these used to be colleagues um, is sort of the tragic nature of that game overall. I think that can sometimes get lost when you're playing Prey because of the fact that it's not this linear experience. So sometimes the sort of connectivity tissue, I suppose, behind the different tragedies in that station can maybe get lost a little bit. But at the same time, they're there nevertheless. And I think that that kind of just speaks to why exploration in Prey is as rewarding as it is, because, you know, if you choose to go route C instead of route A, you might experience a whole different side story or a log here or a log there that gives more credence to kind of the overall um, events that unfolded before the player arrived there uh, or woke up there. Um, I think that that kind of just speaks to, again, you know, monster design, being able to be a facet of narrative in storytelling just as much as an audio log can be potentially you know, the tragedy of, uh, coworkers and whatnot gets me, uh, in the mood to chat about my last pick, which is the head crabs and the zombies ah, yeah. from half-life. Um, so in the original half-life, the zombies that the player is fighting are Gordon's coworkers, right? Yeah. It's the thing where it's like, you know, these aren't just normal zombies, but these are people that Gordon worked with for a number of years previous to the player being brought to, you know, Black Mesa on that, uh, fateful day. And, you know, I think that ultimately what has made the head crabs probably my favorite zombie from any game standpoint is the versatility of them, right? So I identified that clickers were a standout from the world of The Last of Us with The Infected, but the versatility of the use of head crabs and the morphology that stems from that is kind of parallel in some ways to the cordyceps in The Last of Us, because in The Last of Us, the various stages of infection, you know, the longer somebody's been infected, the more monstrous, of yeah. course, their final form is going to be. And the same is true of the head crabs, right? So yeah. initially, you have the head crabs, which are these hoppy little four-legged bastards that jump around and want to, you know, chew on people's heads and whatnot. And when they find a host, the first form is like the zombie host, so it, which is, plays out like a traditional zombie. But then you also have the ones that have been infected longer, which are the runners. Right. And then you have the Combine soldiers that are basically like zombified suicide bombers. Yeah. <laughs> but then you also have the Hive zombies, which basically have this massive, monstrous growth on their back that is like a nest for poisonous head crabs. Um, so I think a lot about the uh, We Don't Go to Ravenholm level from Half Life 2, which is basically one gigantic, zombified, haunted house of a level yes. that you get to face most of these uh, permutations in. But even more so from the sort of uh, various forms and the different combat attributes that come with that, what it always stood out to me about Half-Life and Valve's approach to zombies is that they were never allowed to lose their human aspect. And I think that the most prevalent example of that is the fact that the roar that the zombies give and the fact that they make these like guttural screams It doesn't allow the player to ever forget like, oh, this is like a zombie. No, like this is a person that has a parasite on them. And on some level, they are still conscious to the degree that they're like screaming. And basically like this guttural roar is from, you know, the parasite that is uh, basically um, residing within them. And, you know, even going so far as sometimes when you find a zombified corpse, if you shoot the head crab off of the body... You still see the person's face, but it's this fucked up like Mm. scream that's basically frozen on their face. And that is one of those little, I suppose, details that like Valve used, the old Valve, I suppose, um, not to get on too much of a soapbox, (laughs) but like classic Valve's approach to world building character design was so rich in detail. Like there were so many nuances to almost every single level of detail in character models in the approach to world building in a way that, you know if you describe head crabs and the zombies in the Half-Life series, it's like, yeah, okay, they're zombies, right? But there is such a nuance, I think, to the way that Valve used to design games and worlds and whatnot that it felt like it was removed from even the tropes and the genre standbys that they would be building off of in a way that felt distinctly unique like Valve, which I don't know is something that you can say about them in the last few years. But overall, you know, I think that that's the best example of how Valve can take something that's such a standby or staple in games in horror media like zombies mm. and make them terrifying and more importantly, I think, like, tragic. Yeah. You know, we talked a lot about um, sort of humanizing the monsters with the Resident Evil series and whatnot, but I think, you know, they really did allow the humanity to be an ever-present factor of headcrabs and the zombies that kind of were birthed from them.
1: Yeah, I remember that. You know, evolved version. Yeah, you know, in Half-Life Two, it's just so horrifying with the visual upgrade we got in those year, those six years. And it's just, yeah, it, it, it still chills me to this day. You know, just the sight of them, and that's how they look. As you said, without the headcrabs on. I mean, slightly nullified by the fact that I think the game came just around. The time, I think the internet era started kicking in. Properly, in terms of like YouTube and things, like uh, a few years after that. So, the two things I remember quite <laughs> strongly about it uh, are some YouTube poop things about, um, like what the zombies are saying, which sounds like Yabba, my icing, and like this whole thing about the head crab applied directly to the forehead thing, which I can never forget now. <laughs> I, it, like... I
0: do remember that one, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, those
1: ones were just, yeah, I love that that series of Half-Life shitty things that they were fun but yeah that, so that, that took a slight edge off it but at the same time they, they were just great um dystopian designs especially i think in half-life 2 where everything just feels fucked up anyway in a way that isn't immediately clear i mean it was a really good example of dystopia yeah, you know where everything everything kind of appears right on the surface but there is just something off and then it becomes more apparent the further it goes in and they are like key to that as well you, you see them and it's like oh my god things are definitely not good <laughs> so.
0: well you know one of my favorite bits of lore about the headcrabs is the fact that the combine basically who are these interdimensional beings you know they learned about their existence or they're even maybe stem from their race somehow and the fact that they weaponize them against a human populace mm-hmm. right so that's the whole thing with how they ended up with towns like ravenholm and ravenholm is an example and they don't get into it necessarily but Ravenholm could be an example of countless cities and towns yeah. all throughout Earth because of the fact that the Combine weaponize the headcrabs and they load them into these – they basically make the headcrabs shock troopers yeah. that are loaded into these mortar rounds that are then launched into towns and cities that then spread the infestation, which is one of those more sinister aspects, I think, of the Half-Life universe and the Combine threat that I couldn't appreciate until I was maybe a little bit older and just realizing like, oh, fuck, like it's not only zombies, but – It's zombies that you don't have to wait for them to, you know, walk or crawl to your town. They're literally landing in the town square, and then you wake up to a zombie infestation that's already more or less over.
1: Yeah, so we know that Ridley Scott definitely played Half-Life, and uh, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Because he was getting some of those ideas for Prometheus and Covenant from now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I think that that was just, again, like one of those aspects – That I really wish, uh, you know, if Valve were ever incentivized to go back to their approach to how they used to design worlds and games, um, I think that that's why, you know, even though I'm not holding my breath exactly for Half-Life 3, but if they were ever to start a new series or something like that, I think when you look at their track record of games and building world building, every monster, every detail, every character, they had some greater significance and they had seemingly like more thought put into them whether or not it ended up being the focal point of inexperience those little details add up over time and that's why i think we still talk about games like half-life 25 years later and you know coming up on half-life 2 almost 20 years later yeah
1: and let's not forget that in fairness they there is supposed to be aspects of that in half-life alex it's just unfortunately yeah. not many people can play it so it's uh yeah makes that a very hard game to discuss compared to you know, the original games so
0: there is a mod, though, apparently that uh, allows you to play it, but I'm not sure if that's exactly foolproof yet. But no, hopefully, I'll, uh, I mean, I'll
1: dive into that I mean, one. To... I think they've done the same, the opposite way for the Half Life Two as well. So it's like <laughs> with the VR. So, hey, just you know, Valve, you remember you used to put games on consoles? You, you can still do. Yeah. The, you can still do that. You know, there's a console out there with a whole VR unit. Do it. It's it'd make it a little more accessible.
0: <laughs> so, so. I still have a 360 version of. Uh, Of the orange box and even the original half-life 2 because i was just like those are the types of like i love physical media but i'm not somebody that has just stacks and stacks of games every single valve game i could buy on console or i stumble upon it was the type of thing where i'm like i'm definitely saving that just for either nostalgia or you know preservation
1: sake. yeah i think between steam and xbox i think i've got every game twice i think with valve so yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is fine so i mean and the good thing is most of them work still so that's uh always worth a go but yeah this was a fun uh exercise on it i think yeah, just, yeah uh,
0: really I, it's one of our uh you know more loose loosely structured chats but i think that if anything you know our uh our love of not only monsters and horror but i think our love of just uh exploring i suppose our nostalgia for games and also you know the eras in which we were uh in at certain points right i think you know yes. we've always talked about kind of like the ps1 eras of our time and the place uh, pc times and whatnot and just like latching on to those games that really had an impact on us and are quite meaningful to us and getting to speak about them with a little more specificity in terms yes. of the uh the horrors there within was definitely a great chat and whatnot and you know i'm sure we'll do plenty of these uh special kind of chats further down the line and whatnot but uh until then my friend it has been a pleasure chatting with you about horror
1: back at you until the next time
0: thank you for listening to another episode of safe room if you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at SafeRoomPod for show updates. You can follow our Twitter account for horror bites also at horrorbytes underscore sr. You can join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. And last but not least, you can email us at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys next Monday.